Matthew chapter 22, the title of the sermon is the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. One guess who it is. Okay, Jesus, good job. I thought it was an apropos title for the weekend, whatever. Okay, listen, we're going to cover a a large swath of scripture this morning. We're looking at verses 15 through 46. So like 30 verses or so. We will not do what we usually do, which is read the passage first and then talk about it. We'll work our way through the passage uh, in the sermon since it's such a large portion and there's uh, four little vignettes that take place. So we'll just kind of take them one at a time as we go through. So I'll just pray and then kind of set up some of the context for the passage and we'll jump into it. We'll just read one verse right now that will kind of help set the tone. That's verse 15 of Matthew 22 that says, Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap Jesus in his words. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. Thank you that we sit here today in Christ as the beloved of God. Thank you that as we woke this morning, your mercies toward us were brand new. Thank you that where our sin abounds, your grace abounds. Because you and your great love for us have given us Jesus. Who died for us on the cross that we might have the forgiveness of sins. Rose from the dead that we might have new life and life with you and eternal life. Thank you, God. Thank you that your word tells us about Jesus. And the wonderful things that he's done for us in your love. We ask that today um, you would help us to pay really close attention to your word. We ask that your word would be to us as it is living and active. That your word would be as it's meant to be wonderful to us, rich in our hearts and our minds and our souls. So help us, Lord, to hear your word, to comprehend, to endeavor to obey it and to bring our lives uh, into consistency with it. Please, God. And we ask together the Holy Spirit, for the glory of Jesus, you would please anoint me to teach and preach. I have no confidence in myself, Or my gifts, there's no goodness that comes from me. My adequacy is in Christ. So I humble myself before you, God, and your church. And we ask together, you please help me to teach and preach in a way that's faithful to the Bible, brings glory to Jesus, and does good for the church. We ask it together in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you've been with us for a little bit, you remember that at this point in the book of Matthew, we are in the last week of Jesus' earthly life before the cross and the resurrection. And in this text that we're looking at in particular today, we are somewhere in the middle of the week. And here's what's going on during this week. Jesus is spending the bulk of the week on the temple mount, in the temple court, interacting with the people, and in specific, teaching. Now, you remember that this week is Passover week, the week that's represented here. And that means that Jerusalem was swelled to several times its normal population because there were all these pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims, that were required to come to Jerusalem and worship during the Passover celebration and feast. So there's hundreds of thousands of people there. And the center of all that attention is the temple on the Temple Mount and the temple courts. So they're all gathered there. And during Passover week, there was some political tension because Passover commemorated the time in the Old Testament when God delivered Israel from oppression under the Egyptians. And now in the first century here, they are oppressed by another world power, the Romans. 
And so anytime that Israel was celebrating their past independence and looking forward to their current deliverance from oppressors, the Romans got nervous. So they, they upped the guardsmen, they upped the police, so to speak. They upped their army presence in this worship area where Jesus is teaching. You'll also remember that what, part of what's unfolding here is the imagery of the Passover lamb. That at the beginning of this week, every Jewish household chose a lamb that was the Passover lamb that at the end of the week they would slaughter to remember the time that the lamb was slaughtered for them so the wrath of God passed over them. But during this Passover week, they brought the lamb into the house to observe the lamb, that it was indeed pure and spotless without blemish, so it was a worthy sacrifice for God. And this imagery is unfolding now that Jesus is the lamb of God who is spending this week in the house of God, being observed by the people of God, that they might know at the end of the week when he goes to the cross for them that he truly was pure and undefiled without spot and without blemish. So you have like all of this like intense populist action, all this worship structure taking place, Jesus teaching there, this imagery and this metaphor and these prophecies being fulfilled. And lest we forget, the antagonists now have a plot to kill Jesus at this time. So that's why we're told in verse 15 that they went and laid out plans to trap him in his words. And we've got the usual antagonists here, and we'll have a new group added in just a moment, but we've got the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and they want to trap Jesus in these interactions that he's going to have with them, this sort of boxing match back and forth. And something he might say that might either um, decrease his popularity amongst the people, because at this stage, Jesus is wildly popular. They've been hearing about his miracles and his teaching and raising Lazarus from the dead and all that stuff. Or secondly, get him to say something that would aggravate the Romans, thinking that if Jesus could somehow aggravate the Romans who are on high alert during this time of Israel's expected deliverance, then the Romans might actually do the Pharisees' dirty work for them and snuff Jesus out. So they're actually trying to trap him in this moment. And so they come to him with a few questions. They're going to ask Jesus a political question. Then they're going to ask Jesus a question about the Bible. And then they're going to ask Jesus a question about morality. And we'll see how he handles each of those. So the first part, starting in verse 16, again, verse 15, then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, teacher, We know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought to him a denarius and he asked them, Whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. We'll pause right there. So this is round one 
of this heavyweight boxing match that's unfolding in front of us. And the Pharisees are the first ones in the ring with Jesus. And they send their minions, their disciples. They'll get tagged in later in the match, but they send their disciples along with these new characters we've never seen before, the Herodians, it says there. Now, what's interesting about the Herodians is that we know nothing about them. They're not mentioned other places in scripture. We don't know much about them from history. All we can really figure out is what we can deduce from their name. They were called the Herodians after the Herods, who were the ruling family in this region of Israel under Rome and Caesar at this time. They were sort of vassal kings under Rome, ruling over Israel. And before Jesus was born, you had Herod the Great, who did all sorts of incredible building projects there and so on and so forth. And during this time, you have his grandson ruling, who is the Herod that was responsible for beheading John the Baptist, which was wildly unpopular in Israel. Because during this time, just about everybody esteemed John the Baptist to be a prophet of God. And here's this king subject to Rome, occupying Israel, who puts this prophet of God to death. And now we have these guys. And what we can deduce from their names is that they were supportive of and friendly with the house of Herod. And they're joined together with the Pharisees against Jesus. Listen. The Pharisees and the Herodians would never be friends. The Pharisees hated Rome and hated the Rome occupation. They believed in Israel's independence and they looked forward to deliverance and they were opposed to Rome and its oppression of them in every form and the Herodians supported it. These two unlikely allies come together in opposition to Jesus and they send this delegation to ask him this political question, hoping to trap him. And they begin their questioning, they begin the interrogation with flattery, right? They said some very nice things to Jesus. Verse 16, they said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Now, whether or not they meant what they said isn't the point. But the words are insightful and even accurate. That phrase, they say to Jesus, we know that you're a man of integrity. Literally in the Greek, the phrase is, we know that you are true. Strange to use the adjective true for a person. We would generally say, well, that was a true statement or that's a a true factor or whatever it is. But they say about Jesus, you are true, literally. Literally, they're saying, you have truth in you. And they back up the thought, by saying, you teach the way of God in accordance with the way of truth. In other words, Jesus, you are true. You have truth in your very being and you're faithful to God's truth. You're faithful to God's word and you only say things that are true about God. And then they continue to butter him up even more and say correct things. They say, you aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. In other words, they acknowledge that Jesus does not bend his statements to the wills and whims and desires of people. He's not a politician. In other words, thank you, God. They say to Jesus in this flattery that he is sincere and truthful and fearless and no respecter of persons. Now, again, whether or not they believe those things, we don't necessarily know, and that's not the point. 
The intention here is that they're trying to force Jesus into saying something that would be inflammatory towards Rome, right? And they've got the Herodians with them, who if Jesus says something negative towards Rome, would immediately go to the house of Herod and report this, and they're hoping that then the Romans would do their dirty work for them, the Pharisees are. And the clear assumption is that they thought that Jesus would, of course, denounce paying taxes to Caesar. Caesar was widely esteemed as being uh, the representative of the evil empire that was occupying and oppressing Israel at the time. So when they asked this question in verse 17, they all assumed together that Jesus would reject, verse 17, they all assumed together that Jesus would reject the idea of paying taxes. Jesus' response is interesting. Pick it up in verse 18. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. Jesus, in that short answer, much to our dismay, does not encourage us to refuse to pay taxes. We wish he did. It doesn't encourage us to refuse to pay taxes even when there's a bad king in office. But much to our help, Jesus in that answer does encourage us to stop refusing to give God what is God's. Now I want us to pause right there and think a moment. We probably spend more time in our lives trying to figure out what not to give to Caesar than we do trying to figure out what we ought to give to God. We hire CPAs, we hire accountants, we fill out all the forms, we do all these things, we record all the deductions, we save all the receipts, we look for the loopholes, we do all these things to figure out how we can stop giving too much to Caesar. And we should. But we should deeply consider as God's people what we ought to be giving to God. Jesus dodges their political question by making it seem absurd. Look, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. You worried about taxes? No big deal. But then he drills deep on a spiritual reality because he loves them and he wants them to think deeply about the relationship with God. He says, but give to God what is God's. So I want us to pause for a moment. We'll circle back around with this at the end of the sermon. But I want us to start to think about in our lives what we have that is God's, that is a stewardship from God, that is a gift from God, that is a way that God created us or something he's invested in us or entrusted with us. And how we ought to be looking for what we should be bringing before God. And I'm not, I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about our lives and obedience, our hearts in worship. I'm talking about repentance and going God's way. So I want us to be thinking about that. What in my life is God's that I ought to be bringing before him? So Jesus dodges the, the political trap, pulls them into a deeper spiritual question. So it says in verse 22, when they heard this, they were all amazed. So they left him and went away. End of round one, bam, knockout punch. So, Round two, the antagonists are going to move from a question about politics to a question about scripture. And they're going to actually do some t- 
tag team fighting now. They're, they're bringing in someone else for the next round, the Sadducees. So we read that vignette starting in verse 23. It says, The same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second, to the third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Okay, round two. We need a little background information for this. The Sadducees. The Sadducees were the other leading religious party in Israel during the time. It was like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They would have been kind of like the Democrats and the, who are they? The Republicans. And they together made up the governing body, the Sanhedrin, it was called, of Israel. Seventy elders of Israel made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. So the Pharisees have tagged out, wow, we just got a whooping in round one, bring in some fresh meat. The Sadducees, they step in and they have this question about life after death called the resurrection here, heaven. The Sadducees did not believe in life after death. That's why they were sad, you see. Oh, you already knew that one? You mean that one's not original? Oh my gosh, I thought I made it up. Not. So they had this interesting theological position that they did not believe in life after death. They believed that this life was all that there was. That didn't mean that they thought, listen, this life is all there is, so let's just live crazy lives and do what we want with no accountability to God. That was not their perspective. They lived lives that were devoted to God, and their intention was to be faithful to God in this lifetime. Then they just believed that when you died, you became worm food or whatever happens in that case. But they had a sincere desire in this lifetime to glorify God, but did not believe in the resurrection of the dead to eternal life. And their question that we see here in verse 24, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up the offspring. And then they ask, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Their question is based on an Old Testament passage from Deuteronomy chapter 25. We'll put it up on the screen. Before we read it, I'll give give you the background of it. This passage was given to Israel to protect widows in that culture. Because during that time, women were not permitted to earn wages in ancient cultures. And so if they became widowed, they have very few resources and very little recourse to be well, to be covered, to make a living, to be able to support themselves. So it was very important that there were structures in place that cared for widows in that situation. And and this whole thing of the brother marrying the the brother's wife when he died has to do with family and national obligations. It was about carrying on the family line and it was about propagating the national identity of Israel. 
So these were important things and these were important customs. They go all the way back to the book of Genesis. We see this happening all the way in Genesis chapter 38. But here's the passage that the Sadducees know that they tried to invoke, ask Jesus a Bible question about, to try to disprove that there was a resurrection, life after death. It's actually a funny passage, so let's work through some of it. Moses said to Israel in Deuteronomy 25, When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Never marry a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. So it's family and national obligation. And it continues. But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife... Which, you know, that could happen. Like, they were living in the same household. He might have been like, dude, I saw your marriage. I, ain't, I don't want a piece of that. <clears throat> could happen. <laughs> but if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders. Okay, she's going to tell on brother here. My husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He's not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists and says, I don't desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders and pull out the sandal off his foot and spit in his face. Maybe you should have just gotten married, bro. And she shall declare, thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. In Israel, his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. (laughs) You guys got to read the Old Testament more. This stuff is awesome. This crazy stuff is all over the place in the Old Testament. So that, that, that's what they were thinking about when they present this argument. That's what sits in the background. That's a fuller context to their question. This family and national obligation. And they were somehow assuming that this line of argument would show that the resurrection was nonsensical. And they do so by proposing this sort of far-fetched scenario. Right, a brother dies and the second brother marries her and then the second brother dies and the third brother marries her and then all the way down to seven brothers. That's gotta be nonsense. Listen, at some point, if the dudes keep dying, one of the brothers is gonna say, I'm not marrying the chick. Number two died, number three died, number four died. I'm out on this gig. So it's a nonsensical hypothetical that they propose in trying to prove their point. From their perspective in their argument, the religious legal requirements of the scenario had been fulfilled perfectly according to the Mosaic law. They fulfilled their family, national, and legal law of Moses obligation. So each brother had legitimate claim to the wife, which is why they asked the question, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And it seemed to make the idea then, in their line of reasoning, the resurrection an absurdity. What they're saying, in essence, is that's dumb. Obviously, there's no life after death. These issues of the law wouldn't work out well. So Jesus responds to them in three parts, and we'll break it down into three parts. The first thing that he says in verse 30 is this. 
At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. So pause right there. That's part of Jesus' response. He says to them, look, you guys don't understand. The resurrected life, life in heaven, life after death, isn't like that. He says, we'll be like the angels. He doesn't say we will be angels. We don't get wings and a harp. It's different than that. But in the sense that we're not married in heaven, we'll be like the angels. The pattern for heaven is not so much this life as the heavenly life. So angels are a closer analogy. And he says there that in that life, in the afterlife, in the resurrection, in heaven, we will not be married. Now that might be bad news to you or good news to you, depending on your spouse. (laughs) That might change what you think about heaven. But Jesus says in heaven we won't be married because the purposes for marriage will be fully and finally fulfilled. Right? The first purpose of marriage was companionship. God said in the book of Genesis about the man, it is not good for a man to be alone. Can I get a witness? And so he made woman. Someone say, thank you, Jesus. And he brought the two together for relationship, right? For companionship. And then he told them to have sex and lots of sex. Be fruitful and multiply, he said. So he didn't only bring them together for procreation. He brought them to, or excuse me, for companionship, but he brought them together for procreation. And then we find that marriage is also a living metaphor, a picture for the way that God feels about and deals with his people. In the Old Testament, we see Israel referred to as the wife of God. And God referred to as a groom. And that is ultimately fulfilled in the New Testament where the church is called the bride of Christ and Christ our groom. When we get to heaven, there will be a big old party called the marriage supper of the lamb where the marriage of the church to Christ is finally and fully consummated so that all the imagery that marriage is meant to be in this life, that it's meant to represent, which is important as to why we want to have God honoring marriages and as a witness in this world. All of that stuff will be fulfilled fully in our relationship with Christ. Procreation won't be an issue anymore and companionship won't be an issue. All of our relational needs will be met in the glory of Christ. So he says, you guys don't know what you're talking about. You have this argument about marriage. There isn't even marriage in heaven. It's a good, good little jab. Verse 29, second part of his response, says to them, You are in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. That was such a spicy little jab for Jesus to say to the Sadducees. Because the Sadducees were the Bible guys. Out of the two, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sadducees were the Bible guys. The Pharisees believed in, in the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, but they also esteemed pretty much on equal level the oral tradition, right? Jewish oral tradition, the tradition of the elders. The Sadducees, not so. The Sadducees said, we don't worry about that tradition. It is the word of God and the word of God alone. They were the Bible guys of the time. So for Jesus to say to them, listen, here's why you're in error. You don't know the Bible was a serious shot. And it gets even more serious when he says to them, you are in error. It's in the middle voice in Greek. Literally, he's saying to them, and you have error in you. Remember earlier when they were flattering him saying, you have truth in you? He says, yeah, well, you have error in you. Literally, it means that they were deceiving themselves. The reason he says that is because they were drawing from Scripture, the Scripture that they presented, that they asked a question about, a conclusion that wasn't there. The passage in Deuteronomy designed to protect widows and take care of family and national needs said nothing about life after death or the resurrection from the dead. So they were drawing wrong conclusions from a wrong place. 
One of my favorite Bible commentators, Leon Morris, helps us to understand this by saying, the Sadducees are basing their line of reasoning on Scripture, but they have not taken up a genuinely scriptural position. Therefore, they are in error. They did not really know the Scriptures. It's one thing to be able to quote the passages that one thinks supports one's preconceived position, and quite another to understand and follow the teaching of Scripture. To understand and to yield oneself to what Scripture says is quite different from quoting passages the way the Sadducees were doing. So Jesus says, you, you guys just don't know the Bible. That's your problem. And then he talks about the fact that they don't know the power of God by insisting on the doctrine of the afterlife, resurrection from the dead. Next couple of verses, he says, about the resurrection from the dead. Have you not read what God said to you? When God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Jesus' argument is, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now we need a little background information on that. This phrase that Jesus quotes there comes from the early chapters of the book of Exodus, where Moses is minding his own business, and then he sees a burning bush. And the burning bush begins to speak to him. And it's God speaking to him from the burning bush, right? And that's where we pick up the story. It says in Exodus chapter 3, Then God said, Don't come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, okay, and this is God self-identifying because Moses is wondering, who is this and what is this about? This is God's self-identification to Moses. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. There's a couple things going on here. There is a revelation of the holiness of God. Moses, take off your shoes. You don't understand the place and the presence that you are in. But then there is this very telling self-revelation from God as he self-identifies as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. What Jesus wants to draw our attention to is the fact that when God said that, he spoke it in the present tense. We ought to be very careful with Scripture. Jesus is is carefully teasing out truth from Scripture here. God said it in the present tense. He didn't say, oh, Moses, you want to know who I am? Well, I was the God of Abraham, but then he died. I was the God of Jacob, but he's dead. I was the God of Isaac, but they're all dead. So now I'll be your God. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the righteous resurrected in God's love. Jesus says, God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. So the present tense is very important. He says to them, this is what God said to you. He wants them to hear it for themselves. God was identifying himself to Moses in the burning bush as the God of the living. So that's kind of the punch at the end of the second round. Jesus destroyed their whole argument. And that was probably their like stock argument that they gave to people when they were teaching why there was no resurrection from the dead. And he said to them, in essence, you are not careful with scripture. You are not faithful to the whole teaching of scripture. And you have too low of a view of the power of God. Are you guys serious that you're going back to that passage, pretending that you're worried about the the family and the national identity to be carried on? I don't need a brother to marry his dead brother's wife to do that. I will resurrect the righteous from the dead and they will live forever in glory said to them, you guys don't know the Bible and you don't know the power of God. Now I want us to pause right there for a moment. 
I asked us earlier to think about what we have that belongs to God that we ought to be bringing to him. I also want us to think about the places where we underestimate the power of God and so fail to trust God in certain areas of our lives. You know, and it is an underestimation of the power of God that causes us to sloppily and unfaithfully handle the word of God. But once we understand that God is all-powerful, that God is omnipotent, that there's nothing that God can't do, that answers a lot of questions in Scripture. Once we understand that God is all-powerful, we're no longer baffled by creation and the fact that he spoke all things into existence. We're no longer baffled by the exodus and the fact that he caused the Red Sea to part in front of Israel. We're no longer baffled by the entry into the promised land where the Jordan River stood up on end. We're no longer baffled by the promises and the prophecies that he gave to and through the prophets. We're no longer baffled by the incarnation of Christ. We're no longer baffled by Jesus raising the girl from the dead and raising Lazarus from the grave and calming the storm and feeding the 5,000 and walking on the water. We're no longer baffled by Christ's resurrection from the dead, his ascension unto glory, his ruling and reigning and his coming again to make all things new because God has all power. It answers a lot of questions about the Bible when you give proper view and credence to the power of God. And that's important for our lives because our lives are full of ups and downs and hurts and valleys and storms and deaths and longed-for resurrections. We need to make sure that we are bringing the truth of the power of God to bear on the drama of our lives, which helps us to trust Him in good times and in bad times. So that was the other knockout punch that he gave him. And now the tag team continues. Uh, they move from a question about politics to a question about Bible, now to a question about morality, starting in verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, and that word silence there, literally in the Greek, it's muzzled. Hearing that Jesus had muzzled the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. So this is the tag team here. The Pharisees are back in for round three. One of them, an expert of the law, tested him with this question. Pause right there. An expert of the law. So they're sending in like their gnarliest dude. Right? This boxing match's heavyweight title bout is not going well. They said the Pharisees are back in. They send in their gnarliest guy, an expert in the law. And here's a question he asks, verse 36. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? The law of Moses. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So this expert in the law enters the ring and he's looking to trap Jesus, either decrease his popularity with the people or increase his liability before Rome by asking him this question about morality. And this was a common discussion of the day for people that were serious about following God, for God's people, for the religious leaders, for religious scholars whom this guy represented. This was an important, often debated, talked about, carefully weighted through question. Which commandment is the greatest? And the reason that question even existed is because the Jewish rabbis for hundreds of years had this practice where as they taught the people, they would divide the Mosaic law into two categories, the light commands and the weightier commands. Kind of like 
Well, you get the picture. Diet Coke and what, whatever. So the, the, the light commands and the heavier commands, they divided them into those two categories. What they were not saying is, yeah, there are some things that God said that just aren't important. They didn't even do that. We often do that. They didn't do that. They just said there are certain things that aren't as heavy in the law as other things. For example, the command not to murder people in their estimation was heavier than the command not to boil a baby goat in its mother's milk, which is also in the law. So they made this distinction between light commands and heavy commands. Again, it wasn't an excuse that there are some we don't have to obey, but perhaps there are some that we should be extra careful to obey. And they would debate this back and forth. And obviously, once you create those two categories, it begs the question like, okay, well, what's the heaviest one? What's the one that I have to be most careful to obey them? Because they really wanted to be careful to obey God commonly debated question. And they asked Jesus about that, which is the greatest command. And his answer is not foreign to us. We've heard it before in the Gospels. We'll hear it again. It reverberates throughout the New Testament. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus didn't respond as they might have expected with one of the Ten Commandments. He drew from a couple different places in Scripture when he said the most important thing is loving God and loving people. He drew from the book of Deuteronomy and from the book of Leviticus. Here's what he had in mind when he gave that answer. Deuteronomy 6.5, Moses said to Israel, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Greatest command. And then Jesus said, the second one is like it. And here's where he was drawing that phraseology and that idea from. I want to see this carefully. In Leviticus 19, verse 18, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now look how God is instructing his people right there. See, I don't don't want you guys, God is saying, to hold grudges against one another. I want you to treat one another more like you treat yourself. You know how you treat yourself? You let yourself off the hook pretty easily, don't you? Most of us, not always, and we need help. But you generally let yourself off the hook pretty easily. Your sin looks much worse on your neighbor, doesn't it? And you'll hold against your neighbor for a long time where you no longer hold against yourself. God says, I don't want my people to act that way. I don't want you to hold grudges against each other. I want you to love them like you love yourself. Caring for yourself, letting yourself off the hook, showing yourself grace and mercy. And then he gives them the reason when he says, I am the Lord. You know what that is? That's him saying, because I said so. (laughs) You know when your parents used to do that? I have a three-year-old right now, Fifi, and everything has become an issue of why. Right? Like anything I ask her to do or not to do, it's like, why? I'm like, Fifi, don't break that. Why? What What do you mean why? Because I said so. Right? That's good enough right there. Because dad said so. But why? She keeps trailing down. Why? Because I said so. I'm the father. You're the little one. Because I say so. And sometimes when she really won't take my answer, I'll say, because God doesn't want you to break it. I always feel a little weird about that. I don't know if I'm like abusing my... I want to be careful. I don't know if I'm like abusing my spiritual authority as a dad or... I got to think about that. But that's what, that's, what, that's what God is doing here. He says, listen, I don't want you to hold grudges against each other. I want you to love one another like you love yourself because I am the Lord, because I said so. And also because of who he is, because he's loving and compassionate 
and merciful and full of grace. So he reiterates himself in verse 34 about a different party now. He says, the stranger who resides with you, the alien. This is important to us in this country right now. This is a big part of our discussion. Strangers, aliens, immigrants. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. He says again, I am the Lord your God, because I tell you so, he says, but he also says, I want you to remember how it felt when you were the other one, when you were the stranger, when you were the alien, when you were the oppressed and the dismissed and the locked out and the outcasts. I don't want you to forget your experience in Egypt where you were esteemed as less than and some sort of second-class citizen. You had that experience. I delivered you from that. I don't want you to do that to other people. I am the Lord your God. Jesus says that the law and the prophets, that's a a, a Jesus way of saying the entire Old Testament and all of its commands hangs on those two things. You shall love the Lord your God and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And when he brings in the stranger into this idea of neighbor, he is broadening, broadening, (laughs) broadening, broadening the idea of neighbor infinitely. It's not just the person next to you. It's also the stranger that we're to love like ourselves. Now, these two are deeply interconnected. The idea in scripture is if we are truly loving God, then we will love one another and we will love others because God loves them. And part of what it means to love God is to love what God loves. So these are deeply interconnected. If we're truly endeavoring to love God, we will learn to love what God loves. And so we will love other people because God loves all people. It says in 1 John 4.20, next one, Jen, thank you. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. And that's rooted all the way back in the Leviticus passages. And those are hard words. And Jesus is wanting to drill down because he knows that the religious leaders plot at this point is to kill him. He's trying because he loves them. Listen to me. They were sinners. They were rebels. They were enemies of God. And he is trying because he loves them to bring out the issues of their heart. I don't want you guys to worry about taxes. I want you to start bringing to God what is God's. Right? And here he's saying, listen, I don't want you to quibble about these 613 commandments. I want you to get to the fact that you need to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when you begin to do that, you will begin to love one another. Even at this moment, you're plotting to kill me. You're in violation of the whole essence of the law. Knockdown punch number three. Now, <clears throat> in some states, in boxing matches, it is a rule that there's a, three, there's a three knockdown rule. If you get knocked down three times in the fight, the fight's over. Not in this fight, because Jesus is going to come back with one more round. And this time, he's going to ask them a question. They've had the chance to ask him about politics and about Bible, and about morality. And now Jesus is going to ask them a question in this final round. But he is not looking to knock them out. He is looking to bring them up. He's not looking to put their lights out. He is looking to opening opening their eyes because he loves these people who are against him. So he asks them this question, starting in verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, 
What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, speaking of the Messiah, how can he be a son? No one could dare say a word in reply. From that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Jesus is doing something here that we ought to remember and always be careful to do. Because we are those who are concerned about people knowing the truth about Jesus. We have cousins that we love, sisters and brothers that we love, moms and dads, co-workers, schoolmates, neighbors, friends, people that we recreate with, whom we love and we want them to know about Jesus. I want you to see that the Pharisees were trying to make it about all these other questions. Well, what about politics? And what about what the Bible says there with these hypothetical, silly situations? And, and, and what about morality? And Jesus says, hey, you know what? What about the Messiah? See what Jesus did there? He brought it right back down to the main point. Listen, class, the main point is always the main point. The main point is always Jesus. And people are always going to try to make it about politics and morality and squabbles over scripture. Our job is to bring it back to the identity, the person, and the work of Jesus. That's exactly what he's doing here as a master boxer and whatever. (laughs) And so he says to them, okay, I have a question for you guys. What do you think about the Messiah? There's a broad question. They had a lot of thoughts about the Messiah. This week, Passover week, they were expecting that the Messiah would show up. In every one of their homes, there was an empty chair set at the table that was for Elijah because they believed that Elijah would come before the Messiah. They had lots of thoughts about the Messiah, so Jesus narrows it down. What do you think about the Messiah? Okay, no more politics, no more Bible squabbles, no more morality. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Now he brings the question down real tight. And he's, he's, he's handing them a gimme here. This is an easy one. Because everybody knew that the Messiah would be the son of David. Right? He would come in the lineage, in the line, and be the heir to the throne of King David. So that's a gimme. He throws them an easy question, and they respond that he would come from David. That's obvious. Everyone in Israel knows that. And then Jesus kind of gives them a stumper here. Right? He says in verse 43, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord when he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, you got to get the points on which they agree upon here. Jesus there is quoting from Psalm 110, verse 1. Verse 1. Verse 1. Verse 1. Which is the single most often Old Testament quotation in the New Testament. Psalm 110, verse 1. Everybody knew that that psalm was about the Messiah. That's why Jesus brings it up in this discussion about who the Messiah is. All Israel believed that David at that time, though he was writing about himself in the moment under the inspiration of the Spirit, it was ultimately about the Messiah. They all believed that this was about the Messiah. Jesus and they both agreed that this was written by David, authentic authorship in the Psalms, that the Psalm was written by David and that it was ultimately written by the Holy Spirit, right? He said, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And David wrote there, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies on the feet. If then, verse 45, David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? If you put the verse up there, there it is. In Hebrew, it says, Yahweh said to Adonai. 
Yahweh, the ineffable, holy name of God. Yahweh said to Adonai, another name of God in the Old Testament, means master. He's saying, how could this be David speaking to his son if God is calling the Messiah, they all believe he's about Messiah, the master, the Lord, Adonai. Jesus is doing two things in that. He is not denying the idea that the Messiah himself would come from David. We've already seen him respond to being called the son of David. That was the most common messianic title. He's not denying the idea of the son of David. He truly was descended from David. Uh, Matthew said it in chapter one. He is rather elevating or expanding the reality of what that means. He claims there to be the one to whom the Lord is speaking, who is also the Lord. Jesus, in the face of the Pharisees, claims deity. He claims oneness with the God of the Old Testament. And that he's the one who would sit at God's mighty right hand. And then he also kind of blows their mind on their understanding of this by helping them to realize that his victory would not be in the same vein as the victories of David, the king of Israel. David fought and won victories on behalf of Israel by killing and spilling the blood of the enemy. Jesus would fight and win a victory on behalf of Israel and us by being killed and spilling his blood on the cross for his enemies. This is a different kind of David. This is a different victory. Jesus says to them, I am God come in the flesh. And the victory of God is that I come as a suffering servant who will lay down my life even for my enemies. He's wanting to draw them into the loving plan of God for redemption. And in just three days time, he himself would die on the cross for these very antagonists who were against him for the forgiveness of sins. Romans 5 says to us then, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. We have to look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians and think, man, these dirty dogs, look at them coming against Jesus, plotting against Jesus, the enemies of Jesus. We need to know that we too in our rebellion and sin were the enemies of God and that God loves us so much more than we could ever imagine that Christ came to die for his enemies that we might have the forgiveness of sin, be reconciled to God, be removed from enemy status to friend status. From sinner before God to the beloved of God. And Christ did this for us. And after dying for them, a few days later, he would prove his point about the resurrection by actually rising from the dead. And there would be a great demonstration of God's power. Romans 1.4 says, Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Wouldn't you like to have seen the faces of the Sadducees when Jesus rose from the dead and said, what about that resurrection, boys? (laughs) 
And I would like to allow the scriptures to say to us in the rebellions of our lives and the drama of our lives and the heartbreak and the places of mistrust where we seem to have lost our ability to trust God. How about that resurrection, boys and girls? And if Christ was resurrected from the dead in glory and so defeated sin, death, and the devil, then he is big enough and great enough and strong enough and glorious enough for our drama to meet our deepest needs and to subdue our greatest rebellions in his love. And you know, Jesus wasn't looking to knock these guys out. He was looking to draw them in because he loved them. He was looking to give them life. We finish with this verse, realizing that God wants to give us so much more than we realize. Romans 8, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So I ask you that question is we're done now so you can breathe a sigh of relief. I asked you that question early on. What do you have that is really God's that you ought to be careful to bring to God's, to God? I asked you the question, where do you have too low of a view of the power of God for your life or your interpretation of scripture, or what you expect from God. All the while realizing the gospel is not about what we bring to God, but what has been brought to us by God in Jesus. And to raise our expectancy that if God loved you so much that he gave his only son for you, why do we think he wants to withhold good things from us? Why do we think that when we're holding on so tightly to our sin, to our rebellion, to our anger, to our bitterness, to our stubbornness, to our addictions. Why do we think when we're holding on so tightly these things and God asks us to lovingly surrender our place of opposition to him that somehow he's looking to take from us? God is only ever always a giver for God so loved the world that he gave. God loved these disciples or these, excuse me, antagonists enough to try to draw them into his love. Let's end with 1 John chapter 4. It's a few slides back, Jen. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love one another. Lord, thank you. Even though we have failed greatly in our love for you and our love for one another, Jesus, you loved perfectly. You succeeded where we have failed. And you were the perfect, pure, and spotless lamb who gave himself that we might be forgiven and escape the condemnation and the wrath of God. Thank you, God, for so great a love. Please, Holy Spirit, Help us to lay hold of the great love of God this morning in Christ. The Bible says, Holy Spirit, that it's your job to pour the love of the Father into our hearts. Would you please pour the love of the Father into our hearts by opening our eyes to the truth of the cross? Would you please quell our rebellions and our stubborn places by softening us with the love of God through the truth of the cross? Would you please calm our fears and our need to control 
by consoling us with the fact that Christ rose from the dead and that in him we have new life and ultimate life where we will also be resurrected in glory. Help us to live according to these great truths and these great hopes for we are yours, Lord. The whole of our lives are yours. 